Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is composer and cellist Peter Gregson. You might know Peter from his quite well-known Bach cello recomposed suites, which I think are frankly fantastic, as well as his numerous film scores, which often have a mix of cello and other classical instruments and electronics. Peter's also just released a new album maybe two months or so ago, called Patina. So in the ensuing conversation, we discuss Patina, his Bach recomposed, his film scores, and just about everything else in between. You also get the gift of hearing Peter mimic the sound of the cello uh, by singing about three or four times. Of course, I had to leave that in. Of course, you can find more about Peter on his website or find him on social media. And you can do the same for me as well. I also realized... uh. A few days ago, three, four days ago, was Ennio Morricone's birthday. So be sure to listen to your favorite Morricone score in memory of what would have been his 93rd birthday. Now sit back, and I hope you enjoy. Peter, I'm so glad you could join me today. How have you been? Very well, thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I know it took a little while. I think you've been either touring or playing uh, concerts across Europe recently. Yeah, so it's sort of... Everything started opening up again and also have two young children. So juggling two young children and uh, a new record and a couple of... I've not been doing a lot of touring, but I've had a couple of shows that sort of came back to life relatively last minute. So Your second child was actually born quite recently, right? Nearly five months ago. Oh, so yeah, congratulations. Four, four That's great. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. And yeah, it's a whole, whole new world. <laughs> So with the shows that you were playing recently, were those pieces by someone else or were were any of those your works? It was mine. It was um, sort of rekindled shows from my uh, Bach recomposed record, which uh, was my last last record with Deutsche Grammophon before this new one that's just come out called Patina, which I still haven't actually performed live yet. (laughs) I I assume that's got to be on the horizon pretty soon, right? Yeah, next year doing some next year but it's you know this the whole last time it's been so difficult to know what's happening with anything that we just decided to focus on making the record the best we can and then present it next year good mentioning the Bach composed that this is actually mm. something that I wanted to talk about I figured we'd talk about it later but you you brought it up so we'll jump into it now <laughs> One aspect of it is, what's your goal in, or what was your goal in approaching his cello compositions and revisiting them or recomposing them? Yeah, so contrary to, you know, one or two critics' opinions that it was this sort of position of wanting to improve on on it, actually it was my kind of reverence for the Bach cello suites. As a, as a cellist, you know, I, my background is in very classical hardcore classical cello studies. I wanted to approach the cello suites not just as a cellist, but also as a composer and have them as a kind of dual interpretation. And the idea was to, if you like, shine, you know, to think of them like sculptures, not pictures or or drawings on a page, was to think of them as these three-dimensional objects and that you could turn them around and as the light hits them in different angles, you know, new shadows, new cracks and crevices sort of appear and that was the idea from the beginning, was to almost believe that the music that you hear on, on my record is all there. It all exists. It's just you don't see it. You know, the idea was to do like a deep dive inside the Bach cello suites 
but through my aesthetic lens or something. That was sort of the idea, but it certainly wasn't to improve or rewrite. It was it was very much more as a kind of dual dual interpretation. So that does that, and I I always imagine that as the artist it has to be sometimes rewarding but other times quite frustrating seeing criticisms that try to imagine what your intent is in the first place and then premise their writing on that intent. So is that something that at this point, being in the more public eye for a while, you're able to shrug off or does it still kind of frustrate you or annoy you? Look, I think in many ways, as soon as you put your head above the parapet, you're going to get shot at. But... I think everyone's entitled to their own opinion. And, and unfortunately for a lot of people, that, that includes me. And um, <laughs> so long as you do what you do with integrity, and you know, I believe I have done the best that I could, and it's from a position, truthfully from a position of you know, immense respect and love for this music, then I think it's, it's fine. You know, it's, it's not, I don't know, people who are overly critical... Or, or critical then that's you know it's not their interest it's not for them but similarly there are people that have have loved it and but it's never once been a goal or an intention that people would listen to it and think oh good finally something to replace the bar. the the greatest compliment i've ever had actually from it was i played at a very classical very traditional like pure bach festival and it was definitely like the wild card booking, you know, a bit like, ooh, see what the fringes are doing, you know. And I had this guy come up to me and he was he was a bit older and he was like, you know, I'm a very pure, he, he, you know, he loves his like authentic performance. And he said, you know, he wanted, he wanted to then go away and listen again and see, you know, because in between each suite I'd explained why I had done things or what I was hoping to do. And, and he was very sweet because he said, for him, it was like listening. He has a recording of the Bach cello suites that he that he listens to, and that's it. He doesn't listen to any others because that's the one he likes, and that's great. And we were chatting about that, and he said, "You know, but this has kind of provoked me to want to go listen to more recordings of it." And do you know the visual artist Christo? No. Who? Okay, so there's this artist called Christo, and Christo wraps physical objects, right? So he he wraps buildings, bridges. And the whole idea with it is you don't know what you, what's around you until it's taken away. So he, he wrapped the Reichstag in Berlin. He, he wrapped like a bridge in Paris that people who'd commuted over for 30 years had never noticed it had these lampposts on it. And, it's, and he wraps them in just like white wrapping paper. And I love the idea that something like Recomposed, whether or not you like it or not, can kind of provoke well i wonder what where did that idea come from and and truthfully i'm very proud of it i'm very very proud of it as a as a body of work and i recently or two three weeks ago had played it again first time in about two years and i was like yeah this is it's you know this bach bach is a very big boy and however you push it tweak it scrape it scratch it sniff it whatever you can't shake the bach dna if anything, a project like this only goes to prove the brilliance and the genius of Bach is stronger than any amount of recomposing, reworking. You know, you can try and do it as much as you like, but it still has his 
signature all the way through it. That was really inspiring to me. And I really felt like, you know, it's a bit like the whole thing with uh, judo belts. You know, you start at a white belt, you go to a black belt, and then you go back to a white belt again, because the idea is that the white belt has just become black with sweat. And then when that disintegrates, you go back to the beginning. And I feel like having gone through this process of trying to learn them both as a cellist and as a composer, I now really want to go back and learn them again as a cellist and see where it goes another time. Whether or not I record it or release it, the process was just difficult and stressful, but so kind of ear-opening, eye-opening, whatever the phrase is. You know, it was just a, a really, really special project for me. But not to everyone's taste, but not, not uh, you know, you can't do everything... You know, if it's if it's acceptable to everyone, it's remarkable to no one, as they say. <laughs> true, very true. Well, and and I, yeah, I do, I do imagine that has to approaching it from the compositional aspect more so has to kind of unlock new things about it that you approaching it originally just as the chalice, as the player may not have. Not, I don't want to say grasp because I think that's a, a little diminutive. But no, I think you're right. But, you, you know, the, it's an interesting thing that the there's no urtext. There's no, no Bach manuscript of the cello suites. Hmm. So the earliest manuscript is his wife, Anna Magdalena, her copy of his. Well, she was famously not a very good copyist. And there are mistakes, but there's no authenticated version. But in pieces, other works by Bach, where there's an authentic... Bach hand and an Anna Magdalena, there are discrepancies between them. And you're like, well, obviously, JSB got it right. So maybe Anna Magdalena got it wrong. So there's enough shade to be cast on the Anna Magdalena manuscript. But for this project, I for that project, rather, I uh, assumed that they were as close to the original as I could. So I went back to the Magdalena manuscripts. And there's an interesting phrasing in the titling of the pieces. So it's not just called Bach cello suites. They're actually called six cello suites for solo cello without bass, senza basso. And the senza basso bit is really important because there is a lot of harmonic ambiguity. And with that, a lot of the bowings and slurrings inform harmonic progression. You know, so you would maybe go da-da-da-da, ba-ba-ba and end on the phrase on a downbow. But in the Magdalena manuscripts, often there's an there's a slur just before at the Anacrusis, there's a slur or there's a or a slur implying a harmonic shift. And you're like, well, what if we assume that that's correct? What if we don't take our kind of taste card and think, oh I I'm not going to slur it like that. But if that's that slur is implying it's leading to an unresolved chord. And so in, in the um, the Allemande of the third suite, which otherwise goes, there's some really quirky slurs in the Magdalena manuscripts. And it led me to think, oh, well, just because it looks like it's going to C major, the slurring looks like it's going somewhere else. What if it went to A minor? And that sort of thing where you kind of think, well, it could do this. Hmm. It could. You know, if you're if you're taking that kind of sculpture analogy, if you just shine the light in a different way, you know, it's like you shine a light on your hand doing this and it looks like a bird. 
but it also looks like a you know from a different angle it looks like nothing and i love i love that idea that there is an ambiguity and that's the brilliance and the beauty of of the originals and possibly spelling this out undoes that kind of myth of what could it be but you know it's it's a different thing it's a different beast and it's a different flavor different flavor of bach how often does that inform your own composition. I think it's because it's quite easy when listening to a piece of music as it's progressing. Sometimes you can almost predict or assume it's going to go a particular way. But yes, you know, as as you said, you can really go and add an ambiguity and go in all sorts of different directions at many moments. So is that something that's then carried through in some of your composition of going, hmm, what if? Maybe this is yeah. the, the way that my brain would first take about what if we went somewhere else? Yeah, I 100%. I mean, with, you know, with that project, I think the kind of chorale nature of a lot of Bach's counterpoints and his, you know, the, the, the way that his mind must have worked with harmonic structure and progression is just, you don't even begin to believe you could do it. But it was an amazing one for really knocking me. I had come off the back of scoring a video game and a couple of smaller indie films. And I'm not saying I was like in muscle memory mode, but there were definitely moments where you're like, okay, I need to do this thing and this thing and this thing. And going into doing Recomposed, it was like doing high intensity workouts all day, every day in brain. I was exhausted. You're just like... Because things that you would think should just work, like, oh, I could just do this. It's like, well, no, because then you end up, it doesn't fit and it doesn't work. And it's like this kind of game of chess, even when you're, when you've decided or, you know, you've got permission to, to go off piste. The structural integrity of this music is so strong. It's like a magnet. Yeah, you can push the opposing magnet, but ultimately it, it won't stick. That's where I, where I come back to, like the DNA is so strong it's this magnetic force it has a language in it you 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 can put your own kind of aesthetic to it but the kind of laws of the music that he wrote each note seems to have it like in its own universe you know it was honestly the most like inspiring process from a composition interpretation approach and as a cellist i walked away from it thinking i want to you know this is I wish I had done this when I was at college to learn it in a new way to inform how you're performing it. And, and that's, I'd love to do that now. I'd love to take a year and just like go back and sit and be like, from scratch, what are we doing? What is this? So yeah, it was a hugely informative process, which has 100% informed everything I've done since I delivered the, the record in March, 2018. So is that then something that you'd, recommend broadly to people not necessarily to Bach but like approaching because I think score study is something that's quite common to do to learn composition but would you also then recommend actually taking the approach of uh, attempting at least you know a, a recomposition maybe not to the extent that you did it yeah but you know what it's really common orchestration that's how you learn mm. orchestration Reorchestration, they're fabulous, but you know, Rimsky Korsakov and various other books of composers showing different ways of, of coloring a phrase based on different orchestrations. Well, it's, it's not wildly different to that, really. I mean, I, I don't believe 
obviously there are elements where it changes like you are making harmonic or melodic decisions but then you know you change the orchestration and and you're changing the the tonal colors as well so it's it was a fabulous experience and uh yeah something i would wholeheartedly recommend people do and it's interesting too because i think the recompositions that you've done help further show the timelessness of that music because it's some of your pieces have then ended up in subsequent releases. I know I think one or two of those ended up in uh, your score release for Blackbird, and I think that's at right. least one was in a, a scene in Bridgerton, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they've been in um, lots of other series, films, adverts, all over the place. But Recomposed, actually, that was what led into me scoring Blackbird, with the, mm. the now sadly late Roger Michel. They had temped those three scenes. There are two two pieces, I think, in Blackbird from it, but they're used three times. There's one which is used twice, and it's the sixth Alamon. The... And Roger was like, oh, well, this is working. Do you think this guy would like to write the music for the rest of the film to, to fit roughly in with the rest of it? And so that's how that conversation started. And, and that's, yeah, it's really... It was a fabulous experience. I mean, it was it was tricky because then, you know, as I'm sure you well know, you're then battling against the worst kind of temp love. The worst temp love is temp love of your own music because you have no, or I have no objectivity on it. You know, so Roger was pointing to one scene and he said, oh, I like how it turns sad at this point. I like how it goes. I was like, well, I didn't write it to do that. That's not how I believe it goes i i don't hear it like that and and you end up with this weird conversation because on one hand it should be the easiest thing in the world you know you're directly involved in the production you you're intimately aware of what's happening and you wrote the thing they're talking about and yet it's the hardest thing to unpick if you don't happen to agree with the summary of what's happening <laughs> where it's quite easy to do with someone else's music where you're like yeah i see how that goes from happy to sad i see how that does this this and this but it's difficult with your own music take that as an example how do you then cross that bridge where there's kind of an, an inherent disconnect to start off with i mean i think you you know you need to uh kind of prod the conversation from and that's where music's a great one because you can you can write something and then you've got something to talk about. It almost doesn't matter if you get it right or... In fact, it doesn't matter if you get it right or wrong, because then you'll find out. Yeah, it's more thinking of the music as a, a sort of babelfish, you know, like a kind of universally understood discussion, like, like a language that you can discuss. It's the value of doing a demo. It's the value of pitching. It's the value of having something that you can talk about. And music... Music is music. I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't like music. So it's something you can easily share and have references. And I really love the kind of collaborative element of filmmaking and bringing music to a film. My new record, Patina, has only just come out. So it's a little bit soon for it to have been placed and synced into, into a production. But it, it is being choreographed. And that's a really fascinating experience because... That is then a dance work that's being created off the back of something. You know, it's it's this really inspiring cycle where you're like, I wrote that piece in my sitting room during COVID and now dancers are bringing it to life in Toronto or, or whatever. 
<laughs> so it's it's a sort of inspiring thing. But I think with film, you you need to find as many talking points as you can, and whether that's the music that's in the temp or the music that you bring to the table, it's ultimately it's all about serving the film. So how you do that is up to that working relationship, and you know everyone's going to approach that differently. And it's actually. Blackbird's an interesting topic because I think that's actually the first piece of yours that I heard. And then seeing that it had recomposed in it then took me down a very indirect rabbit hole through your music. Okay. And so, yeah, it was, I mean, it was just a, such a lovely score release to listen to. Oh, thank you. Yeah, of course. But yeah, going into Patina from that, it was kind of a, a surprise for me being familiar with that side of your work first because there are a lot more electronic elements in patina and that's something that you hear yes. in some of your other releases in i think your your recent video game score release i think it was for boundless that again has you know more electronics too so before getting into the meat of patina when do you decide to strike the balance of being much more cello classically heavy versus having a, a bit of an amalgamation between the two worlds it's a funny one it's not like you know, if you think about a film, it's not like you're saying you're making a period drama. Will we have robots? <laughs> you know, or uh, Star Trek, but in in uh, you know full Regency dress. <laughs> it's it's much more like if you're writing abstract music, like an album like Patina. It's more about you're creating that world. So it's not this like this and this and this and this. It's well what am I trying to say and what are the what are my tools for telling that story and you know a lot of those instruments a lot of those sounds really speak to me and I really respond to so I don't think of them as electronic elements or classical elements or acoustic or whatever they just they do a thing that that moves me or or inspires something and then it's that's going to work in a film obviously if you're chasing a temp score and maybe there's like a really present piano, well, good luck getting a cue over the line which doesn't have a piano in it. But for the most part, I think you, you're looking at, again, Blackbird wouldn't have worked with a, a synth-laden score. The aesthetic's not right somehow. And yet this scene in, uh, in Bridgerton, which I know was quite sort of present, forward-facing, you know, modern stuff, but there was a piece of mine and a piece of Max's in that um, dance scene in the last episode. And um, yeah, my, mine has a, a synth arpeggiator right the way through it, but it's in the, under a period appropriate dance sequence, you know. So I think in the right context, the ear's brain or the brain's ear kind of relaxes and doesn't think about it. It just goes with it. You know, it's presented as like, oh, this is the sound world. This is the sound. This is what we hear. But I think... Yeah, the music in a film, it, it's a an extension of the characters in the film. So if you've got characters in the film that feel like they have that voice, that sort of thing, then, then it can work. Orchestration is so important to that. It's not like something you just think about at the end. It's, it's so integral, I, I believe, to the, the flavour of the score and consequently the flavour of the film. I just think of electronic elements like I would think about, well, will I have a clarinet? Will I have a French horn? Will I have a Juno synthesizer? You know, it, it's all all fair game and it, it, everything's got to kind of earn its place. 
So then would you kind of view the these different instruments or styles of instruments as more akin to a color palette versus classical electronic hero rock instruments? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a color. It's like you look at a wall of paintings. You can paint modern city life with oil paintings or you can paint a pastoral scene of a field. The, the medium isn't what tells you. It's, it's the story that you're depicting that tells the story. So you can write very modern, angular music using Baroque violins and make it sound like the end of the world. Or you can write something very meditative and personal using a, a chipset sequencer. Yeah, it's a colour. It's not the story. I think that example's actually really interesting. And so that I, I wanted to bring up is you as a cellist, a lot of your playing, again, rooted in, well, not rooted, but having some of the Bach recompositions, your work in Blackbird and some similar works. But then you have uh, kind of on the alternate spectrum of like some of Hilder's work in, in Joker or like the recent Candyman score or um, the score for Johan Johansson's First and Last Men or Last and First Men also feature like heavily featured cello, but in this droning apocalyptic sort of sense. And so I, I, I do find it so interesting that you take one instrument and it can be used in any type of situation, any type of style you can imagine almost. And you know, the, the kind of the great, I mean, quite aside from the Bach cello suites, but the, um, the Benjamin Britten cello suites, there are three cello suites by Benjamin Britten. And in them, you kind of have to learn to play like a choir, like a flute, like a Gregorian chant. There are all these things. And I think the cello is a is like this terrific synthesizer in a weird way. Like you can create these incredible sounds, which because of the tonal range of the instrument. But I think I think the examples you're using speak more possibly to the general personality type of cellists. There are a lot of composers who are cellists. And I don't know why that is. I think uh, it's probably because we've all grown up playing Pachelbel's Canon and we're fed up and going, go, 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 go. But you, yeah, I, th- I think there's a there's a definite thing there. You know, there are definitely more cello composers than there are other instrument composers, other than maybe piano. But there are a lot. My kind of alternate reality is I play on a lot of the big, like mega budget films uh, mm-hmm. in the in the team of uh, remote control and I don't do that so much now but I, I did do a lot of that for the last like 10 years or so and it's an amazing difference but you know that kind of big big score made up of lots of tiny elements is a fascinating process to me but I mean that and that's in a way like film in a microcosm as well where you have people doing sometimes very specific niche tasks that all come together to create some like two hundred million dollar, two and a half hour epic film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's nice to over time discover these instruments and the breadth of which they can be used. It's like yeah, you know, I, I think you have starting off a very rigid way of looking at something, and then that sort of tears down the walls, which is really nice. I did want to touch on patina as well. And some of that you mentioned quite early on, talking about the art exhibits and having things, visual things, kind of disappear from what you're used to. 
I know that that was yes. kind of one of the concepts in a way that you approached composing this album as well was, and this might have been your words or it might have been a critic's words. I'm, I can't remember at this point. Let's see. Finding presence in absence. Yes, that was one of mine. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the idea there was, originally I started writing this record and it had these big melodies, these big kind of leading melodies. And I loved the idea that you could build this whole piece around your central melody, you know, harmony, counter melody, rhythm, texture, whole whole world. And then you take the melody away and you build everything back up again. You know, then the counter melody is then the melody is the most present thing you hear. And then you take that away. And what I like with this is you, you don't need to hear the melody for its impact to be felt. You know, the piece exists and the structure and the, the phrasing all exist because that that melody was there and it's a bit like if you think in a in your family or in a in a conversation that you know that there are these stories of like your great great grandfather or great grandmother or your aunt whoever in wherever and that kind of informs a lot of how people build their lives i love this idea that you know you don't need to be told everything all the time you don't need to be told the melody for the melody's impact to be felt if you if you create a kind of peace and a, an environment where that exists, you know, where that's possible. I think with with Patina, a lot of these melodies, it's like, you don't want to be told the punchline twice. I think it's okay to, and it, it's important to trust the audience to be able to listen and have a relationship with music that develops over time. And I think that can only really happen if you give it space to breathe and give it space to develop and by removing the melody it's like you don't need to hear it for the rest of the piece has got this kind of skeleton but by not playing it it gives the listener the ability to hopefully hear new things when you when you do listen to it you know if you listen to it a few times you your brain will kind of fill in the gaps and maybe it'll imagine it in a different way i mean it's not like it's ultra minimal this is pretty maximalist minimalist music it's quite dense but i do i do like the idea of having space for breath or for thought or, or whatever. And um, that was that was how I wanted to approach this and, and something I wanted to explore. So yes, yeah, the, the presence of absence or the, the absence of presence. In some ways, it's it's such a... It, it feels like a simple concept. You have this full composition and then remove the melody and continue the process from there. And yet, even though it exists, it's not a simple abstract concept. You're not just explaining it it's still sometimes just quite difficult to process because I think we're so in tune to having that there. Yeah, I think I think we're sort of, as time goes on in, in the world, in society, we're kind of increasingly, like the world of rolling news and Instagram feeds, we're used to just a bombarding of everything being affirmative and being, you know, everything's constant, everything's sort of saying the same thing just in different ways and i love the idea of of that just not being there and just trying i don't know do you think it's an an experiment or an exploration of that that worked for me yes in that i found it was a very i found it a very inspiring way of working it wasn't like remixing someone else's music but over the period that i was writing it you could find new angles in you know, so by removing something, you're like, oh, well, that did that element earn its place? 
you know, so you hopefully end up with really strong ingredients. But, you know, like if you're cooking and you're making spaghetti bolognese, nobody talks about the water that's required for making bolognese. You know, you reduce it. It, it has to boil off. You don't want watery bolognese, but you needed the water to begin with. And I like this idea. Like, I like that it doesn't need to be thanked. You know, it just needed to exist, but it didn't need to be there at the end. <laughs> and so it's that sort of thing, really. But I feel like we live in a time where ambiguity and independence of thought or agency are not things that are valued. You know, it's like you've got to do stuff that is beyond reproach. You've got to be, you know, any statement that is made or any post that is made has to be proofread for any possible interpretation by someone who might take offence or might interpret it as one thing or another. It's like, well, you're down that road, madness lies. And I think with this sort of work, this sort of project, I really wanted to just write music that I wanted to hear and was excited to share with, with people and that could feel human and could feel like something you could sort of build a relationship with it can be complicated and it can be complex and it, it doesn't have to be complete music's tricky at the moment because when we write it ostensibly it's, it's as a recorded project like this it's it's a perfect snapshot in time it, it never changes whereas we as humans we age we decay we evolve we change everything changes you know even the the clothes you're wearing the shoes you're wearing if you wear those shoes for a hundred days in a row that they're going to shape differently the jeans you wear shape to your body the ones you wear the most decay the quickest you know like a vinyl you play a vinyl a thousand times a million times it it gets pops and crackles and it scuffs whereas you play a song on spotify a billion times no impact i'm fascinated by this like how do you build a relationship with something that has no human characteristic you know how do you relate to something that is inherently unreal and so i wanted this record to sort of feel like it had lived a life and it had space to grow space to develop yeah yeah i think that's that was where i wanted to go i just wanted it to be um something that we could feel like it was although it's not possible for it to do it that it was aging and decaying whilst you were hearing it on your weirdly sophisticated bluetooth headphones you know yeah, that, that was sort of where it was all coming from, really. And I think that's such a fascinating concept to explore because, like you said, it's it's a snapshot in time and no matter what, the music, the recording isn't going to change. But then as time goes on, your relationship with it changes or you know the, right. the evocations of it change. And it's, it's always so fascinating to me, maybe a, a month ago, so I... Listen to an album I probably hadn't heard in a decade, and I I used to listen to it when I first got it. I I listened to it twice a night, every night before I went to bed. So then wow. listening to it years and years later, it's one. It's such a different response, but yeah. then it also brings back those memories and those feelings too. And it's it's such yeah. an interesting complex relationship we have with these things. Yeah, I was a big Spice Girls fan too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Yeah, I know. And, and I feel like, especially in this kind of whatever, contemporary classical or whatever it's called, side of the world, I love evocative titles, as in I don't like telling people what to think. I want it to be open to interpretation. I don't want to tell people what I was writing about, because that doesn't matter, I don't think. 
doesn't matter to me. I just want to be able to listen to something and, and if it speaks to me, then it speaks to me and then I want to be able to engage with that. And I think we often have to have this kind of sideline in sort of amateur poetry to, to come up with titles for our pieces. And it's just never, it's not something that feels right for me to do that in life. I don't like being told everything. I like there to be a kind of openness and a, a questioning element to it. So this is probably the wrong period of life to be alive where we've got to kind of explain everything to everyone all the time. But it's them's, them's the cards you've been dealt, I suppose. I do agree. And I think that that's it's something that is, I don't know, necessary in some ways because, and, and this is not me getting on my soapbox because I'm as tuned in as everyone else is for, for better or worse. But yeah. it's it's nice having things not spoon-fed to you and for there to be ambiguity and earned ambiguity, not a cliffhanger that just appears for no reason, but, but that feels yes. natural. I like that. I, I like when you as the audience member, as the, the listener, the viewer, are forced to then sit back and fill in blanks or... When the, the record of the film ends, you can keep imagining. I, don't yeah. know, I think that's one of the most rewarding things. Yeah, and it's also a, a respect thing. You can trust that the audience, you know, it's like this whole thing with films where they end up often having to add in these really shanky lines of like off-screen dialogue just in case someone didn't get the connection between character X and character Y. Like, oh, nice one, sis. You know, or whatever. You're like, oh, was that necessary? Like, the onus should be on the audience. You know, it should be like... Anyway. <laughs> I I like I like that. I like the space for interpretation and growth. And that was what I wanted to achieve with this record. So in that respect, yes, I this did work for me. I, I, I'm proud of the results of, of that and how it was created. And, yeah. and, and you'd mentioned this a couple of times before, or in uh, different ways before, a combination of the density and yet the absence that kind of paradox makes it a rewarding repeat listen when it isn't straightforward and when you don't get everything at once or when there are other things to kind of experience or explore or yeah. discover as you go and as you listen again it it makes you want to listen more and it makes each listen not necessarily better not necessarily worse but an exciting a slightly new experience i think also like and again a slightly tortured food analogy but i feel like you know, sometimes you you can't live on chocolate croissants, right? It's a really good energy kick. It's really tasty. But you also need, like, complex carbohydrate. You also need, like, porridge or something slow release. Because, you know, you chase the sugar rush and you're just going to be needing another one again and again and again and again. Whereas if you have something kind of with a low glucosamine index, a low GI score, you'd be like, yeah, you can sustain for longer you you your body kind of processes it differently and i like that idea as well that there's sort of fast food and there's slow food i think there's fast music and there's slow music not in a metric way but in a kind of processing way you know you listen to the the top 40 or you listen to the the big kind of club bangers right now a lot of it's hard to tell apart you know there are definite things that work and phrasings and, and sounds and speeds and everything and I love the idea that you know, obviously that's entirely fine and, and that's great. And I love all that stuff. And it's fabulous. But also 
it's okay for something to not make a sudden impact. It shouldn't just be about chasing huge streaming stats just because they're visible. And it's difficult not to because it's addictive. It's designed to be addictive. It's not designed for self-actualization and and kind of personal development. It's designed to keep you engaged in the platform. Yeah, if if my music was like food, it would be porridge, not uh, <laughs> not a croissant. It's but I mean that like slow release. You know, I want it to be something that over time takes. You know, it has sort of longer term nutritional value. <laughs> <laughs> I need to work on that analogy. Stodgy. Porridge is very stodgy. <laughs> Bland. You have to add honey. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> excite people either. No, but uh, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> then the the totally candid way to say it is I don't really like porridge. So Ah, uh, okay. We've got a naysayer on the porridge. I like porridge. Um okay. Quinoa. <laughs> But I think the point stands. I I, I sort of chase this um, this idea of something that has a longer term processing and doesn't necessarily do a kind of instant gratification. Because yeah, it's more for me. It's more interesting, and that's the only thing I can really do. So can't you can't please everyone. No, but it's it's like you said very early on in this. That's kind of the point. You don't want to. There's no if you've pleased everyone. You've excited no one. Exactly. Exactly. You know what, Peter? I I think that's a nice spot to to end on as well. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and thank you for joining me. I'm I'm so glad you could. I know, gosh, I think we'd uh, been planning this in some form or another for like three and a half months. So I'm glad it's come to fruition. We've done it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks so much and uh, have a nice afternoon.